When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Get up, make us gods that will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Break off the gold earrings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the gold earrings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He accepted the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made a molten calf. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow will be a feast to the living presence. So they got up early on the next day and offered up burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink. And they rose up to play. The living presence spoke to Moses, Go quickly, descend, because your people, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned aside from the way I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf, and have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Then the living presence said to Moses, I have seen this people. Look what a stick, stiff-necked people they are. So now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them and I will make from you a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the living presence, his God, and said, O living presence, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with the great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, for evil he led them out to kill them in the mountains and destroy them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent of this evil against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and told them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven in all this land that I have spoken about. I will give to your descendants and they will inherit it forever. Then the living presence changed his mind over the evil that he had said he would do to his people. May this awaken us to the living presence. Hello and welcome to the Lectio Cascadia podcast. My name is Brandon Rhodes, and I am glad all of you are here. Thanks for continuing to follow along as I pace myself a little bit more in exploring these old stories with you. I do genuinely appreciate the time you make for this. Thank you, as always, to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for this music. So, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, you've heard of him, was the culmination of the story of his people, the Hebrew people. The people through whom the unfucking of reality would proceed. Through whom... Uh, uh, a new level of human consciousness and belonging would happen. And their origin story, well, I should say, they actually had like almost a quilt work or constellation of stories to remember who they are. They didn't just have one. They had a, this uh, quilt work of stories. Uh, and where they were going, um, 
out of these stories, the well, the, the brightest star in that constellation of stories, the core story of the Hebrews, it's one of them crying out for liberation. Their ancestors, you see, are stuck in slavery to this theocratic empire. They cry out, and the story really begins with the divine hearing and feeling and being moved by these cries of the oppressed. One teacher goes as far as to say that history itself is inaugurated by the cries of the oppressed. In other words, it's what moves the story forward. So the story goes forward um, that the divine is moved over the course of a generation to raise up an unlikely character who will be the divine's spearhead in liberating these people from this empire and then letting them return to the homeland of their ancestors. The divine introduces herself to this liberator representative, Moses, in the desert as simply the living presence. That's who I am. I'm the living presence. <laughs> uh, and I'm here to free slaves. <laughs> uh, Moses' confrontation with the god emperor of the oppressor is told then as this like standoff between the living presence and both of the words for this oppressor as uh, God emperor, right? As a battle between competing visions of the divine and then as competing visions of power and belonging between two kings. Because anything we say about ultimate reality is what we say about how this, real this reality works. Anything we say about authority, anything we say about hope, anything we say about what it means to be human. See, these are all enmeshed. And the emperor claimed to also be, in some sense, God. So the, sto these, the story goes that, these are, that, that the living presence is dueling both with an array of gods, but that's not just like supernatural magic. That's political and social magic happening as well a refutation of the false little things that prop up the bullshit machine, right? So, yeah, all these uh, wild things happen, feats of magic and spectacle and crisis and loss that challenge every little god that's behind the empire. Fertility of the land, of the river, of the sky and sun, of male power. All these things are challenged by the living presence. All these and more are challenged just one after the other. The oppressor class, the imperials, they believe that the well-being of society, the success and forward movement of the human project happens through their worship of these little gods, of each of these parts of how the whole system works. Every society has this, whether we use God language or in religion language or not. How can we get together? How can we be safe without heavily armed police? How can we be safe without a military that, that requires more money than all the rest of the world's military expenditures combined? How can we be safe? How can families endure if we aren't being mean to gay people? How can families be strong if we aren't mean to non-binary people? See, we have these fixations that require sacrifice, 
religion is not just a thing that happens in a church or around an, uh, a little statue. It's not just something that happens in your prayer closet. It's something that happens in the HR department, around the dinner table, on the sidewalks, and in paychecks. And so that's what's happening in the empire that is being challenged here. These stories of little gods being challenged are stories of those little bits of security, of a status quo that we think we can't freaking endure without. <laughs> um, we've got to worship this one god for food, one for water, one for sunshine, one for human fertility, and all it goes all the way up to the god emperor that kind of holds it all together. Without the empire, the whole pyramid so to speak, of little safety gods falls. And without the pyramid of little safety gods, what's the point of the god emperor except raw power and control? So you see, this story of liberation is also a story of liberation from false futures and a status quo. The, the, um, the religious pageantry of an oppressive status quo. The living presence is calling absolute bullshit on the whole thing. <laughs> I love this story. Anyway, the, the Hebrew people with uh, Moses are liberated from this humiliated empire, and they plunder the empire on their way out, and they get all the rings and stuff, right? And they pass into the desert on their way back to the land of their ancestors, decked out in the jewelry of their oppressors, but they, like, pretty quickly get restless. Yeah, the living presence provides for them in their vulnerable state, but all kinds of weird things happen, and they just don't seem to be able to keep it together on this new side of their liberation. See, then in the middle of the desert wilderness, Moses goes to the summit of a mountain that's covered in smoke and fire and lightning and earthquakes, and expects them to just be patient. Just hang out at the bottom of the mountain until I come back. I'm going to talk to the divine. We're going to sort things out. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's the important, that's the important detail, right? He's talking to the divine up there. You'll have to take my word for it, he says. <laughs> uh, well, he infers. Um, Oh, and also, this happens for, like, over a month. So, like, by day 40, that's where the story that I started reading at the beginning of this thing picks up. They're not just bored. They feel vulnerable. What the hell is this? Did the divine lead us out here to die? Is this what happens when God answers a prayer? See, there's a faith crisis happening as well as a material crisis, a boredom and impatience crisis. And yeah, it pretty well says it right there. A lot of them are wondering, I don't usually expect old men that walk into fire earthquake lightning storms on top of mountains to survive. So are we stuck here now? He might be dead. Um, they're really experiencing a primal human moment. Vulnerability. Waiting. Enduring. Resting. And feeling this feeling of being in between 
empire and home. The instabil the stability of the of their imperial oppression and the stability and steadiness of being in a fertile home. Everything they've known for 400 years is behind them, but it's not out of them. They've known how to be slaves to an empire of a false spread of divinities. That's familiar to them, and that's what all empires are, right? Whether they're claiming many gods or one, whether they use the same name for that god as you do or not, their god, their history mover, their center of reality is, of course, going to justify their power and control and pyramid-shaped society. And it's still in them, even as they resented the oppressors. So yeah, they've very suddenly been cast outside of a stable reality of bullshit. <laughs> uh, they've, uh, they're suddenly, the boot is no longer on their neck, but now what do they do? What comes next? How shall they feel secure? There are no unknowns, really, with a boot on your neck, except when it would finally snuff you out. No, now, now there's no boots, but there's also no familiarity. There's no sense of, what are we going to do? Patience is excruciating. Do you feel that? Maybe you've known someone who's gotten out of a toxic family, away from abusive parents, or an abusive spouse, or religious community, and they keep operating in a pattern of the toxicity of their parents and siblings and spouse and minister, right? They're away from their abusers, but the tools of their survival in there emerges in dark ways once they're out. Or you have, maybe you've known someone that, yeah, has got, gotten out of a religious community of one kind or another. Maybe uh, they just couldn't hold space for this person and their reality. Maybe it's because they're gay or a woman or indigenous or they have questions or their sacred attunement is uninterested in the games of the gatekeepers and they leave. But now we're suddenly in between. Between their oppression and they're flourishing. See, being in a suspended state of liberation is complicated. The web of tensions that had given them purpose and courage are now gone. What do they do now? Right? The, the raw exposure, apart from those tension relationships, it's weird. They may never want to go back there. They of course don't want a boot on their neck, but they miss the familiarity, the identity security, the dysfunctional emotional regulation that comes with their old, that, that came with their old world. It's what they know how to do, even if it's not what they're here to do. And now, <laughs> uh, that, they want all of that from exactly where the living presence drew them out of. And that's what the Hebrew people are feeling right now, the terror of being in between. The, and so, so the acting leader, Aaron, who's Moses' brother, feels this distress and tries to be pragmatic, right? He wants to give them something familiar to help them 
yeah, feel secure. Like there's a future for them. Like they don't just have to be um, cleansed, perhaps with their pa- with uh, hard earned patience. Uh, like the path that got them out from under the empire is like he wants to assure them that the, what got them out of the empire isn't going to lead them to death. Like it, it will get them to flourishing. <laughs> so he appeals to the familiar. Uh, putting their chips on a few gods. Moses has made a golden traveling spot of holy encounter for the living presence called the Ark of the Covenant. Indiana Jones finds it about 2,000 years later. It's cool. Uh, But they wanted spots of holy encounter with all other presences of other gods. The living presence, after all, seems, well, pretty busy with the firework thing happening at the top of the mountain with the old guy. So may as well go back to the gods that they knew to the imperial status quo and imagination so let's let's so aaron helps them specifically appeal to the gods of that status quo but kind of like makes it penultimate makes it secondary to the living presence so hey here's some additional hot spots for the holy but it's all in service to yahweh see so isn't that nice how that works instead of the Emperor, we've got you. God, he just misses the script so hard in his attempts to calm them down. Um, so yeah, they build this other traveling hotspot of holy encounter in the shape of a bull calf. Yeah, see, in between time is hard. Familiarity's seduction looms as the familiar itself wanes. The heart flits briefly toward what it knows, even if what it knew never did a damn bit of genuine good. Even if what it knew, what makes sense still, is death. We wish to be back with him or her. We wish to be back in the pews that broke our hearts to the covenant or membership or ego-stroking pulpit activity that strangled us. Yeah, a felt sense of security and stability is a hell of a drug. They returned to the familiar pattern of toxicity and false futures. They returned to appealing to the little gods that propped up their old oppression like an Amazon warehouse worker wishing Jeff Bezos a profitable year. <laughs> like, But it's actually deeper and darker than that, it's worse than wishing fortune on your oppressor. It's about something like deeper and bigger than any Bezos or God Emperor. Um, yeah, the divinity, the animating energy of something, it's bound up in a relationship of trust, hope, security, loyalty, fear, satiation, a belief in what kind of reality we're in. That's the heart of what's going on here. Not just... Uh, a competing metaphysic, strictly. <laughs> uh, so really, the problem with worshiping other gods isn't just a matter of whether they're real or not. Same goes for the props involved. Whether an idol is used or not doesn't define the problem of idolatry. It's not the problem, the crisis, or the reason for this behavior. It's that we become their prop. We become tools of our tools, and these are bad tools to be tools of. We're just going to go back to being imperial tools if we return to these. 
they had already returned to the empire in their spirituality, in their hearts. The Golden Bowl was just the public performance of this, like, exodus in reverse. This de-liberation. See, the divinity that's the animating energy of their status quo, of their security, that's the, that's the crisis here. Um, they're hoping to manipulate these little gods into getting what they want all the way outside of the empire when these little gods were totally enmeshed in the might of that empire. So you're just going to go back to rebuilding it if you keep, the empire if you keep doing this. They're placing their hope in the toxic shit they just got freed from. That's a path back to slavery and death, not liberation and homecoming. It doesn't move the universe forward. See, what broke the endless wheel of imperial time wasn't this load of bull. It was the liberating divine, the living presence. He's already given them instructions for how to live together after slavery, how to live beyond trauma and not re-traumatize others, not pay it forward from one generation to the next, not to re-empire. There were stories that were being told, rituals developed, rules made, songs sung that were about replacing their imperial imagination with a bigger and better one, replacing their heart of stone with a heart of flesh. An imagination and life together of mercy, increasing mutuality and neighborliness. And that's exactly what the Divine Roar is about. Like, have they forgotten who the hell brought them up out of hell? Have they forgotten what this whole thing is about, where it's going? So Moses' response is like, you're the, you're the god of the long game, man. You're committed to this little liberation project and told us as much. Like, you'll be known as the god of bait and switch if you hurt them. Like, you'll be known as the god of abandonment instead of the god of liberation and belonging. So please don't blow them up. So the divine doesn't. Good point. The divine says to Moses. So as much as this story, as much as it tells us about the nature of being liberated, the lingering desire to return to an abusive stability instead of a vulnerable liberation, and how our souls so quickly melt our dignity to get us there, as much as it shows us what it means to live with our liberation on journey, live daily with our faces turned away from empire and toward beauty, the story doesn't end on that note. It actually ends with learning what it means to be a liberator and the divine learning what it means to be the liberator divine. See, the sacred liberator, the living presence, she's ready to throw it all aside when they're pining for imperial gods and imperial stability. If death's what you want, it's death's what you can have. Like, that's the energy. But Moses appeals to the story so far. Moses remembers, binds back together to the divine heart and commitment that's been moving the whole thing forward all along. Like, yo, your relationship with these people is part of your world healing thing, part of your homecoming project. You swore to the ancestors as much. Liberation is the long game, and it requires your patience too. 
And liberation requires, yeah, patience, its own steadiness, not the steadiness and the sterile steadiness of stability, like the abusive stability of the brick-making monotony of empires. No, Moses appeals to the living presence to be steadfast, to be dynamically steady, not sterilely stable, to hold to the bass note of the song being played here a long-term certain commitment to flourishing. Look beyond the horizon of your temptation and move it forward. This steadiness in resolve to freedom, not destruction, is what we've got to extend to ourselves, what we must feel in the divine closeness to us when we want loads of golden bowl of our own and what can ballast us in our commitments to one another's liberation. May our week ahead be filled with curiosity and wonder, gratitude and laughter, courage and presence. And may the peace of Christ be with you. Mm-hmm.